This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, I have a very interesting and unusual guest. She is a macroeconomist who I'm going to guess you've never heard of. Her name is Dambisa Moyo. Uh, she has a fascinating background from Zambia to Wisconsin to New York, Boston, and then London. Uh, she's, uh, uh, they call it a nylon, back and forth between New York and London. Uh, really fascinating person who spends a lot of her time traveling. She's been to over 70 countries, uh, uh, author of three books. I-, I find her perspective and insights into what's happening in the global economy, especially in the frontier markets and the emerging markets, really very interesting. Uh, Some of the things we talked about were very much different from what you usually hear from U.S. economists or U.S. policymakers. Uh, She is quite well-read, quite uh, highly educated, a master's in policy administration from the Kennedy School and then a PhD in economics from Oxford. Um, Very much a free market person, but very difficult to pigeonhole. Some of her comments about infrastructure around the world and infrastructure in the United States uh, make it a challenge to to put a label on her. I find her to be quite fascinating, quite interesting. And, you know, it's unusual when I'm having a conversation in with one of our guests that someone says something that genuinely surprised me. And she did that a number of times. So without further ado, here is my conversation with economist Dambisa Moyo. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Dambisa Moyo. She is a global economist who has worked with firms such as Goldman Sachs and the World Bank. Uh, let me give you a quick background uh, on her. A BS, a fascinating actually academic background. A BS in chemistry from American University. You also got an MBA from there in 1993. Followed up with a master's in policy administration from the Harvard Kennedy School. And then a PhD in economics at Oxford University. That is really quite the eclectic academic background, isn't it? Well, thank you, Barry. Um, Yes, I guess my attempts at staying in school maybe went a little bit uh, further than my parents had hoped. But uh, yes, I feel very lucky. I've had a chance to learn a lot in different areas, and I really enjoyed it. So um, you come out of Oxford, and you end up as an economist at Goldman Sachs for nearly a decade. You then move on to become a consultant to the World Bank in Washington, D.C., And currently, you're serving on the boards of directors for a number of companies. Uh, For people who may not know the name Dambisa Moyo, you are the author of three New York Times bestsellers, Dead Aid, While Aid is Not Working and How There is a Better Way for Africa, How the West Was Lost, 50 Years of Economic Folly, and lastly, Winner Take All, China's Race for Resources and What It Means for the World. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention... You were named to Time Magazine's one of 100 most influential people in the world. Uh, Danby Samoyo, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. So let's talk a little bit about that eclectic background. How did that lead you to the world of financial services? 
So I suppose it's really about curiosity, ultimately. Um, I've always been really interested in the marriage of science with real-world outcomes. And so I spent my time, my initial part of my career focused on chemistry and science. That was my undergraduate degree. And then I realized that a lot of the scientific applications, in particular mathematics, were being applied in, in uh, finance more and more. And obviously, if you think about Black-Scholes and options pricing, etc., the sort of uh, gap between science Science and finance, as I would say, uh, continued to narrow. So it was, to me, actually, in retrospect, a, a pretty easy jump um, from a chemistry degree and, and also an MBA, but also doing a PhD in economics, moving into finance. And that was really, it was not more, it wasn't really by design, I must confess. It was sort of by accident. So, <laughs> so when you talk about the mathematics of science, when I look at, at fields like chemistry and physics, there's a tremendous precision. We're actually recording this the day of the flyby by by uh, Pluto. You get incredible. Uh, the ability to land on a comet is is something that physics does. Do you find that economics doesn't quite have that same degree of precision? Humans are a little squishy and <laughs> they don't seem to really operate as they're supposed to? Well, I'm sure I'll be um, flogged for saying this by my fellow economists, but I mean, I think it's really not a science in the sort of purest form. Uh, we'd like to be viewed as scientists um, because we do think that there's always a closed form solution to some of the economic problems that we're all very well aware of, whether it's economic growth, um, issues around uh, climate change uh, estimations, etc. Um, but the reality is actually um, economics is just a, a compilation, particularly macroeconomics, a compilation of human decisions and human behavior. Um, driven by incentives and their and individual utility functions, and therefore it's very hard to model, um, especially you know with over seven billion people on the planet. R Richard Thaler, who was a guest uh, previously, the economist at uh, University of Chicago's Booth School, called the father of behavioral economics, said the entire field of economic misbehavior is really a function of how people operate in the real world as opposed to how they're supposed to operate according to the rules of, of economics. So when you say it's not a science, you're in good company. Yes, I know, Richard. I just had dinner with him not too long ago. And, uh, you know, obviously he's got a fantastic book out. And he's absolutely right that what we would like to see happen in theory, particularly people like myself who are more on the free marketeer side, um, actually in reality doesn't really transpire. I mean, governments behave badly, uh, individuals behave badly, et cetera. And so ultimately it doesn't really pan out. So when you were at Goldman Sachs as an economist, what was your role? Were you client-facing or were you advising other people within the firm? So um, while I was at Goldman, I actually had a couple of roles. Um, one of them, my initial role when I first arrived was on the capital market side and covered um, a lot of emerging market clients, both sovereign states, but also a number of corporations. The bottom line was that I had actually spent uh, a long time doing my PhD in economics, sort of three and a half years, and I really wanted to get practical experience on how the markets worked. And I was very interested in emerging markets and so landed at Goldman in the debt capital markets business. I subsequently went back into research um, and it was really around the time of the BRICS work that, um, that Goldman mm -hmm. put together. So did, did you work with, uh, is it Jim? Um, Jim O'Neill. Jim yes, O'Neill, yes. Jim was, Jim was my he, boss. He's yes. the one, oh really, he's the one who coined the phrase BRICS. 
Mm-hmm. So so let's now move forward. You were at the World Bank. What was the environment like there? So actually, just to get the chronology a little bit correct, I, mm-hmm. I would have gone to the World Bank before I did my doctorate. And so um, ah, okay. I had, I mean, I, I'm from an emerging market. And so I've always been fascinated, not just by the big economic, global mark, uh, economic and macroeconomic questions, but I was also very fascinated in how finance can actually solve some of the problems that we see in the emerging markets. So a big, um, big part of my my experience at the World Bank was around those issues. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is macroeconomist and global observer Dambisa Moyo, who not too long ago published a New York Times best-selling book all about China and its consumption of resources. So let's start over there. We've seen China's growth slow, but it slowed from double digits to six or seven percent. What's the outlook for China over the next couple of years? The IMF just published their World Economic Outlook um, about a week ago. And um, what they're forecasting is that it will roughly, uh, China's growth will basically hover around 7%. I think 6.8 is what their estimate was. Um, Just to put this into context, um, you need to be growing at at least 7% in order to double per capita incomes in one generation. So, you know, I would say that, um, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, there are concerns about the outlook, not just for China, but global growth. And it's it's unsurprising uh, in the sense that China is obviously a very large part of the global economy. And to the extent that the developed world continues to suffer from issues around um, debt and deficits and uh, issues around uh, aging populations and slowing productivity, it's no surprise that China, which very heavily dependent, has been dependent on the trade arm um, to fuel its economic growth has suffered as well. So let's delve a little bit into your book, Winner Take All, China's Race for Resources and What It Means for the World. China is a massive consumer of natural resources, aren't they? Yes, they absolutely are. And it's been um, very well documented. I was fortunate enough about a year ago to spend an hour with um, the the president of China, President Xi Jinping, with a group of uh, 10 of us. And one of the things I thought was incredibly stark was that he expressed the view that the biggest challenge that China has um, is the risk of scarcity of natural resources. Um, China is, with a a population of about a billion three, has only 7% arable land, um, and it has a significant um, depletion, as we know, around water, which is very important. Um, They're continuing to try and uh, um, address the issues around pollution and environmental concerns because they do have to feed themselves. Um, But obviously, um, a big part of their agenda to continue to drive economic growth has been focused on outreach and going into places like South America and Africa. Um, They are the largest uh, foreign direct investment places like Australia, where natural resources from iron ore, copper, etc. continue to be a big part of the the China story. And as we see China's economy accelerate and decelerate, we see the impact in global prices. If you look at iron ore and copper over the past few months, it parallels almost to the sense the trajectory of China's GDP announcement. Absolutely. And, you know, Barry, the um, the natural resource, particularly mineral sectors, had a very bad um, few years. Um, last year, 2014, I was just looking at some data, the um, impairments for the whole industry. So mining industry, gold, copper, and iron ore put together was $100 billion of write-offs on wow. impairments. And that's really quite significant um, for um, for that kind of, a, of an industry. How, how much of that do you trace directly to China's economic? Well, it's op- hard to say someone growing at 7% is slowing, but relative to 
you know, mid-double-digit growth, it is slowing. No, I mean, well, I think you're right. I mean, there's a directional point and then there's a relative point. I think in directional point, I think we're going to see China probably hover around 7%. I'm pretty optimistic that some of the interventions that the government is putting in place will yield sort of in a flywheel effect some of the benefits mm-hmm. um, of, of sustained economic growth. Um, but you're right, on a relative basis, this is much slower. But I think to look at it in isolation and start hand-waving that the sky is falling down, I think it just really doesn't do that. That shows a lack of understanding of how um, the global economic dynamic is likely to play out. So there have been a number of China bears uh, amongst the hedge fund community uh, and here in the United States. It sounds like your outlook is somewhat optimistic for China's ongoing growth. Yeah, I mean, I suppose um, optimistic is once again a more relative word. I mean, I'm more constructive is what I would say. And I think that, um, you know, obviously with the massive sell-off we've seen in the last few days uh, and, you know, the government intervention into the markets, I know that the bears are sort of cheering and thinking they got it right. I mean, remember that the stock markets are still uh, on a year-on-year basis are still above uh, trend. So I think that that's Up 80% on a 12-month basis. Absolutely. And I think- Even though year- So year-to-date, they're still positive. Just to put a little meat on this, can China's government control their stock market? Well, I think there are a couple of things worth stating before I address that question directly. First of all, the Chinese market is very retail focused. So about 85% of- Much more so than the rest of the developed world. Much, much, much more so than that. As you know, I think the sort of rule of thumb is like 98% of the US market is owned by sort of the top 1% institutions. institutions. Um, But I think the more fundamental and important point here is that the um, intervention by the Chinese authorities has been seen not just in China, but the U.S. has intervened in their markets. Sure. The Japanese have intervened in their markets. I mean, you could argue that monetary policy, as we're seeing it now, is an intervention by the national governments in order to But it's to indirect. What we're seeing in China is a direct intervention in the markets. Look, fiscal policy eventually finds its way to the markets. Monetary policy finds its way to the markets. Even tax policy, you know, if you go back and look at what Reagan did and what George W. Bush did, uh, the Warren Buffett line was, hey, give me a trillion dollars and I'll throw you a heck of a party. (laughs) Uh, That said, it seems China is a different breed entirely than what we see from Japan or Europe or the United States in their willingness to actually wade into the shares exchange and either buy shares or prevent, you know, it's unprecedented to say to 71% of the shareholders, you're not allowed to sell for six months. That's really direct. And by the way, that started at 30% and went to 50. As they added more and more rules, if you're a 5% holder, if you're this stock, uh, there's uh, that's got to be unprecedented. Well, you know, Barry, I think people tend to split hairs. I mean, we see um, you know suspension of of individual stocks or market suspensions. We've seen that in Western economies. No short selling. Uh, they prevented that. Absolutely. absolutely. And so, you know, the 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 responsibility of public policies to ensure that you don't have a complete collapse in in the financial markets or in the economy. As I just said, the the structure, the underlying structure of the financial markets in China means that there has to be by its very nature be, I would argue, given that it's sort of mom and pop, uh, you know, uh, holding the stock, that the government would be more aggressive in addressing this and trying to protect them. They don't have the culture of pension funds and insurers as, as we have in the United States. And so I think it's a bit naive to sort of think that they wouldn't be as aggressive as they have. And we know about interventions in, with foreign exchange. Um, in many countries, you picked out Japan. I mean, we know about interventions in monetary policy more generally. Um, I think it's, it's really incumbent on public policy 
to step in when the markets are not clearing or there's a, a fundamental um, problem in the, in the market system. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dambisa Moyo. She is a global economist who specializes in emerging market and frontier markets. Um, you're also the author of a book called Dead Aid that was pretty critical of Western aid to, to Africa. And, and you had noted a trillion dollars of aid has been sent from rich Western countries to Africa, and it's essentially been wasted. Explain that. The fundamental premise is we have to reflect on what is the purpose of aid. And the purpose of aid was twofold, as far as I could see. Number one was to create economic growth in a sustained way. And as I mentioned to you, the 7% is really the rule of thumb, the number that we need to achieve in order to double per capita income. 7% growth in order to double income Per capita uh, for a genera- incomes over in one a generation. generation. Okay. Exactly. So really important that we get to the 7% number. Um, the second thing is that we wanted to meaningfully put a dent in poverty. And on these two metrics alone, the fact of the matter is that that has not been the case. And, and of course- Not even close, Not right? even close. We've seen many African countries regress. And I you know, I pick on Africa because that's my origin. But the reality is if you look across um, aid recipient countries around the world, it's been the same catastrophe. Latin America, South America, Asia. Southeast Asia- Exactly. All the same net results. And look, the reality is we have seen some cases where aid has been effective, but it tends to be in short, sharp interventions. The Marshall Plan, for example, $100 billion roughly in today's estimates, which is five years, U.S. putting money into Europe. But it was, notice it wasn't an emerging market. It was rebuilding a developed market, which is a different... It's a completely different tact. But there are also examples from emerging markets, places like South Korea, Botswana. They received aid. In fact, the called the aid graduates because these countries were able to utilize this received aid and to to basically to catapult or to basically uh, uh, as a catalyst for economic growth for those economies. I am guilty of forgetting that South Korea was once an aid recipient because they're one of the most successful economic nations in the world. Absolutely. So, So what went right in South Korea that didn't go right in Latin America or Africa? So I think that there are many, of course, many aspects to what has happened. I mean, they became very agriculture focused. So the aspect of being able to be self-reliant, um, they've obviously invested a tremendous amount in innovation and uh, R&D. And so they have, they are, as you pointed out, one of the very big competi- competing countries around the world in those areas. Um, I would argue that what we've seen in places like Africa and South America in particular is that there's been a large um, recipient. These countries have been recipients of, of money. Um, but there was no expectation that it was ever going to come to an end. So we've seen the catalog of of corruption and misuse. Um, we've seen inflation. We've seen concerns around debt. You know, debt. De- I mean, and we're talking about Africa here, not Greece. But I'm sure we'll come to Greece in a minute. Um, but I think that there's a bigger issue here, which is the fundamental problem with the aid system, is that it does sever the responsibility or the relationship between the taxpayer in the individual country. Um, and the, their government. So the governments very rationally spend their time courting the donors. And the donors, I'm afraid to say, have tended not to really care about what was going on on the ground in the sense as a follow-up. So even if countries didn't deliver growth, they still just gave them more aid as opposed to sort of punishing them or, or you know, really trying to change the Okay, the so so I'm benevolent dictator and I'm appointing Denby Samoyo <laughs> in charge of all global aid to emerging economies. What do you do to make this work better? What's what's the what's your prescription? So that's a fantastic question, Barry, because we know the good news is that we're not living on you know planet zoo where there's no information. The reality is we know what creates economic growth in a long term in a long term context. We know that 
trade is better than no trade. Mm-hmm. We know that investment in infrastructure is a critical piece of Always. this. We know that financial liberalization and investment in financial sector is a huge... Define it, that as it applies to an, a, a, a frontier African country. Yeah. What is that? How does that actually manifest Well, itself? we need capital markets. You need them to be liquid, right? And you need them to be able to be transparent as well in the sense that like anywhere else, you need people to be able to make bid and ask offers that people, bid and ask uh, spreads that people can see and make judgments on whether or not they want to sell their goods and services at those prices. And I think that one of the big problems with the aid system is that it does create a lot, a lack of transparency, much more Mm -hmm. opacity around market prices. And that's a massive distortionary aspect in the economy. I I have a friend who's a banker in South Africa. His his name is Pierre Duplessis. And he, five years ago, said, I would like to create an ETF for Africa. And I think since then, that's finally come about. But five years ago, if you wanted to just make a purchase of of African equities, it was almost impossible. Yeah, absolutely. And I must tell you, you know, things have changed considerably. And I think the financial crisis, if if there was anything good, was that it did um, force African countries and other emerging markets to figure out that they have to stand on their own. And so we've seen now about 20 countries in Africa have stock markets. We have about 20 countries in Africa also that have credit ratings and they're issuing international debt. They have to take responsibility for the running and management of their economies. And by the way, that is good democratic policy anyway, because the governments are then held accountable by their people. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Dambisa Moyo. She is a globetrotting economist who has visited more than 50 countries, and she likes to specialize in the brick and frontier economies in Asia, South America, Africa, and the Middle East. So let's talk a little bit about your eclectic background and, and how you're really a citizen of three different continents. You're, you're born in Zambia. You come to the United States when you're fairly young, right? That's right, yes. And then you go back to Zambia to study chemistry um, uh, in college. Yeah. So my formative years were definitely in Africa, at least that's the way I view it. Um, You know, my more recent time has obviously been in the United States, where I I did my master's at Harvard and then going to Oxford to do my PhD and subsequently working abroad. couldn't get into a better school? I know. It's just shocking. (laughs) (laughs) What can I say? And you're now, you're kind of, not even bi-coastal, you're bi-continent. You're in London a couple of months a year, right? Yeah, I'm told it's called nylon, so I spend time between... Nylon. (laughs) New York, London. Exactly. Someone oh, did say to me, you can also have Nylon Kong, which is New York, London, and Hong, Hong Kong. Kong. So, yeah. But oh, anyway, for now, it's Nylon. Um, I have been to actually over 70 countries around the 70. world. 70? Yes. And uh, I have to say, I've loved every minute of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I you know, encourage uh, listeners to put their boots on and grab their passports and get out there. One of my great laments about my fellow Americans <laughs> is that only 34% of them actually have a passport. Yeah. And I, I often get into arguments with people about the state of the U.S. infrastructure, it's like, oh, you haven't been to Asia or Europe, have you? (laughs) When you go to Brussels and their roads are fantastic, when they are about to be repaired, like what they think needs work is what we aspire to. Um, Not even talking about the Autobahn in Germany. And then let's not even talk about trains and other infrastructure in Europe and Asia. We, the United States, once led the world. We're so far behind You mentioned the importance of infrastructure, so let me ask you that question. How significant is infrastructure 
even in a developed nation like the United States. So we're sitting in the United States and there's been a catastrophic underinvestment in this country in infrastructure. And there are at least three reasons why it should be a no-brainer. Um, one, obviously, a developed economy and developing countries need the foundation of solid infrastructure. But number two, from a duration perspective, for long-dated um, pension funds sure. and insurance companies, they, they need, need the that bonds. aspect. Absolutely. Yeah. And the third thing, which I think is completely obvious, is that it's what a great way to create employment in the United States. So by the way, now what's fascinating, I see a lot of road construction that I haven't been seeing previously, but we're reading more and more that it's the state and not the federal government that's doing it. So Utah and um, Washington state and now New York, some of them have passed increase in the gasoline tax which, by the way, is frozen where it was in 1991. There's no COLA. There's no cost of living adjustment. Mm -hmm. There's been no in increase as the number of people in the country have more than doubled since then. So what a big surprise. Yeah. It, and I guess people don't get elected for, for doing <laughs> maintenance work. That crazy idea. Um, but, you know, the, the truth of the matter is I think most people would be willing to um, pay a little bit more to get decent infrastructure. I mean, the road situation is atrocious. Um, atrocious, And actually, right? the, the airports as well. I mean, I've been to better airports you know, than JFK and, at Lagos in Nigeria. You, you heard what, what <laughs> Vice President Biden said about LaGuardia. It, it, third world airports are nicer than LaGuardia. I think they just approved about a six. I know they approved. I don't remember if it was seven or nine billion or, or less, but it's a multi-billion dollar renovation of LaGuardia which hopefully will be done in our lifetimes. But it's really such a dump and yeah. so over. At least there are a handful of terminals in Kennedy, in JFK, that... That aren't half bad. Right, that are, <laughs> are tolerable. Although, you know, the airport in Detroit is nice, the airport in Denver is nice, but it's they're noticeable because they're nice. Yeah. The, the rest of them are... And you're in Asia pretty regularly. Regale people with what infrastructure <laughs> yeah. in Asia is like. Well, you know, this is one the, one of the hallmarks of the Chinese and also Asian success story is that they very quickly understood they needed to invest a considerable amount in infrastructure. It's the way that you get goods and services to market. It's the way that your economy functions, the way telecommunications work. And that that's what they've spent a large chunk of their money on. And, it, you know, to, to the critique of some, I mean, the people would argue that it's probably gone too far and the proper bubble in China that people have been talking about right. is probably an artifact of that. But the reality is, um, you know, if the U.S. has about 70 percent of its GDP is consumption. Um, in China, it's, it's you know, much less like 50 percent, if that, if that. I mean, some estimates are around 30 percent. And th this is, I think, really a testament to the way people think about infrastructure and fixed income investments in, in the place like China versus that in the United well, States. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sick you on Grover Norquist and <laughs> you'll be able to, to change his perspective. It's far too much focus on deficit financing. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I, by the way, oil and gasoline prices are down so much. What would be so terrible if, if gasoline prices had a 20 cent tax? Yes, it's a tax mm -hmm. so that the roads and bridges and tunnels don't collapse. This is how civilized societies <laughs> behave. Um, before I forget, so you're you're in London how often? Um, about once a month. Oh, so, so you're there pretty regularly. I am, yes. I know I you have you have an apartment, you're at an office right in the middle of London. 
I wish that were true because you, it's so expensive. I I do have, have an a office place there. Yes, Not I do. An yes. apartment or an office? I did have I did have an apartment, but as you probably have seen, the uh, the cost of uh, apartments on and infrastructure fire. it's just insane how expensive it is to get mm-hmm. on the on the property ladder. So I don't more than that. San Francisco, people have been saying. Yeah, I, no, no which doubt. Which is which well, is more than know, New York. As you know, England is an island, and so it's yes. you, you can't exactly keep expanding. And they don't really do skyscrapers the way they do in New That's York. That's the so. thing is is it you look at you look at Hong Kong or Shanghai or New York, well, there's no more land, but there's lots Go of up. air. Yeah. And now this new round of towers that have gone up in New York, are, are they're astonishing. Residences as tall as the Empire State Building, yeah. that's a whole new thing. You really don't see that in No, London. you definitely don't see that and in London. I wonder if they're ever going to find uh, they're totally out of space and need to start building up, or they're just going to be a flat city like Paris, like some of the other great cities of Europe. They don't build up. They build out. And then they run out of space and they're done. Well, you know, I think the uh, the which we're essentially talking about here is urbanization, which mm-hmm. is a huge pillar of um, public policy agendas, particularly in the emerging markets. As you probably are aware, in China today, there are about a hundred cities that have at least one million people. Yes. Um. In they there have been very the, the they the public uh, political class in China has been very explicit that they're looking to increase that to two hundred and twenty-one cities with one million people each. Wow. Um. In about twenty years. Um. By comparison, the now United- wait before you move off of that. Sure. Is is <laughs> Is that because they're moving people away from the agrarian hinterland and in the farms and into uh, uh, more educated, more professional? That's partly to, partly to do with it. But mm-hmm. obviously, as we've seen even in the United States, where in the 1900s, you had sort of 60% of the population living sure. on land, um, you know, now have less sort of 2 to 3% of Americans are involved in the agricultural space. Time. I mean, that is essentially the transition that we're seeing uh, in places like China. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very deliberate because governments can then deliver public goods like infrastructure, but health care and education uh, in a much more efficient way if people are closer together. So you've been to over 70 different countries around the world. Yes. What do you think Americans should know about the rest of the world that we simply are ignorant about? Well, I think it's more about a mindset. Um, You know, someone said to me recently, actually a very senior uh, chairman and CEO of an American company said the interesting thing for him was that the rest of the world was more similar to each other than the United States. And mm-hmm. so but by that meaning the Amer- America is the anomaly. Everyone else is much more similar Makes even sense. even the uh, the European allies. Um, and I think that the important thing from that is to really understand why countries have developed in a very different way. Um, there are many countries that have very long histories and civilization and it's very important to understand that countries do ebb and flow. China and India were the largest economies in the world in the 1800s. For- Thousands of years, absolutely. China, right? And, and you they, go back how they, far? Absolutely. Well, you know, Angus Madison's data is from the 1800s. Um, but they made mistakes, which countries do, mm-hmm. and they paid for it. So that whole communist thing? thing, is that what you're referring to? <laughs> I'm referring to underinvestment in education, in infrastructure, all the stuff that we're talking about now. They became much more closed society. Uh-huh. And, you know, there they are. They lost multiple generations of, of their country in terms multiple of progress. Multiple generations. Absolutely. But, you know, the United States, I, and I, I think this is a fantastic country. I love being in the United States, but we know that you know the OECD report 
um, PISA reports on education is showing that the United States right now is not in a good place where education is concerned. If getting anything, worse. it's getting worse. The um, the statistics around mathematics, performance, and science is showing that the United States is sort of number twenty five in the world. Um, in fact, the the OECD also put out a report saying that this uh, generation of Americans is less educated than the previous generation the first time, for the first time in yeah. the history of the country. And you know, we've talked about infrastructure already. I mean, t- to me, these are the um, Sort of the, the this is the impetus for a declining society if the government doesn't do and not just the government but if citizens don't uh, really get up and say this is not with the direction we want to head so there's there's enough uh, sort of warnings about um, the the sort of economic challenges that the U.S. is going to face and the question is is there anybody who's responsible enough to really take charge and to move us positively well well is there well we'll see when the election rolls around next year <laughs> whoever you decide to elect will decide that all right we'll we'll find out. <laughs> (laughs) We've been speaking with Dambisa Moyo, global economist and consultant to various banks and other institutions. By the way, if people want to find your written work and research, where can they access that? My website, dambisamoyo.com. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we let the tape rolling and continue discussing weighty issues with our guest. Be sure and check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast portion of our show. You notice the way I have to do that. That's my welcome uh, gesture. Uh, I'm sitting with Dambisa Moyo, who I was fortunate enough to first meet at a, um, I'm trying to remember where we first met, and then we subsequently went to a lunch with a, a friend, uh, Josh Frankel of, of Merrill Lynch. Um, and there are so many questions that had come up during that lunch. I want to run through some of them because they're they're quite quite fascinating. Uh, but before we start getting into your early history, um, there were some questions that I missed during our broadcast portion. So the most important one I want to get to is you're a board member uh, for a number of global companies. Yes. And that's really, it's a fascinating set. So Barclays Bank, not only are you on the board of directors, but you're a member of the risk committee. That They're a giant financial um, headquartered. Are they headquartered in London? They're based in London, but um, they obviously purchased the Pretty Lehman. Global. They bought Lehman Brothers assets. They've been in Africa for 100 years. And after the Lehman Brother assets purchased after the financial crisis, obviously they've got a big- For a song. It was such a great purchase <laughs> post. You know, they were negotiating pre-bankruptcy and- nobody could look at their books and make an intelligent assessment. And you have 45 minutes. Here's $100 billion. <laughs> um, so they, it was a fantastic purchase out of bankruptcy. I love those sort of like, uh, let's be a little patient and see if we can get a uh, distress sale. And that's exactly what they ended up doing. Uh, SAB Miller, the giant uh, beer company, beer company, yeah. uh, brewing company, U.S. based, but they're global now. Absolutely. They're everywhere. And I, I said, I actually misspoke. I said beer company, but actually they also produce water and soft drinks. So they've they themselves have you know expanded their portfolio and really capitalizing on much of the emerging market uh, growth of consumer. Um, what what we see with Coca Cola and Pepsi and and similar beverage companies is the soda sales no pun intended, or flat, um, but it's the water and juices that are really the growth drivers these days. It's not tea to to a, some degree also, but it's no longer soda. It's healthy, natural, and water is an issue wherever you go, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely, yes. Um, and then the third company, Barrick Gold, where you're also a member of the audit committee. So these are so eclectic and 
you know, if I were to randomly pick three companies, I wouldn't say Barclays, a gold company, and a brewing company. How did you end up uh, finding these companies? How did this come about? Well, I'm really very lucky um, that I've had the opportunity to serve on these boards. And the reality is that um, I was very interested in being constantly being able to, to capture a view on what's happening in the world economy. And mm -hmm. so through the financial services, Barclays, consumer goods, fast-moving consumer goods through the beer, uh, SAP Miller, and then natural resources um, through Barrick, I've been able to really get a good idea of what's happening in these many different aspects of the global economy. And so that's been quite deliberate, but also very fortunate on my part. And, and I always call them Barrick Gold, but really they're Barrick Gold, Copper, and, uh, and other ores. yes. Gold have, is just a part of what they do, it, isn't That's it? absolutely right. I mean, we've had a, a copper business for a number of years now, quite significant. A um, number of years? For yes. a century or two, no, something like that? No, not that long. We've only been around about 30 years. So. That's all? Yeah, but even though it's, it is the largest gold producer in the world. So. It is? Yes. That's fascinating. And you're only wearing one piece of gold. You should be, you should be dripping in, in, uh, in gold. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, your background. I just wanted to make sure I, I touched base with that before. Um, there's a tendency to just get lost in digressions, and I wanted to make sure we covered that. So so who were your early mentors? Who basically said, this chemistry stuff is interesting, but you should look at, at finance and economics? So in my case, absolutely my parents. And I know mm -hmm. that sounds a bit canned, but you know, I really think to look at my parents as being the real pioneers from um, coming from Africa, which is where I come from. I come from a landlocked small country, you know, at the time about 10 million people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they left... Africa to come to the United States. My father did his PhD here. Um, where did your dad do his PhD? He was at Wisconsin. And, and what was his PhD in? It was in linguistics. As really? It turns out. Yes. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So how do you go from Zambia to Wisconsin? That's not, so, that's not the usual route, is <laughs> no, it? No, exactly. I think they learned the hard way, how brutally cold it can get yes. out there. Um, but he also, they also studied briefly at UCLA. But, um, you know, the that transition, it's not, we, we take things so much for granted now, telecommunication, mm -hmm. just pick up the right. phone and call home. But but at that time they had never no one from their families had ever left Africa so they didn't know how to get on an airplane and to connect in London to get to Los Angeles and then obviously to Madison later on, but um, so I consider them to be the pioneers and they are really a testament to open-mindedness, not getting bogged down by negativity. I mean, they were coming out of the colonial era, but they were still very optimistic young mm -hmm. Africans, very keen on uh, economics and education, educational success. And so they had to be thrilled watching you work your way from one university to. There are still some schools you haven't gone to. Yeah, isn't I it? know. I'm still working on but, it. But <laughs> but your parents have have to. When you graduated with uh, your from Oxford, they had to be thrilled to say, "Oh, look what our little girl yes. has accomplished." Well, you know, thankfully they were there um, at Oxford when I was uh, awarded the doctorate, so they were very thrilled, and that was a, a great experience. That that's fantastic. Um, so. What about economists who have influenced you? Who who were the uh, great thinkers in economics who affected your approach to macro? So I've um, tended to err on the side uh, of uh, being a, a free marketeer. Um, mm -hmm. So perhaps more of the Chicago school than uh, anything else. Yes and no. Because some of the stuff you've said <laughs> has not been – so people think of you as a little more right-leaning, but you're right-leaning in the U.K. Here – you're what would have been considered a moderate Republican 30 years ago. Yes. Unfortunately, you have to go to the Museum of Natural History, <laughs> and next to the Brontosaurus, you can see the moderate Republicans who pretty much aren't 
certainly not elected anymore. Yes. They're, they're no, gone. I, I do know I have these strange monikers. I mean, I suppose I come from a place where I, I don't want to feel hamstrung by, are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? Are you a Keynesian? Are you, I just think that those type of, uh, um, ascribing those type of, of labels takes away from what the real issues are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was, uh, a couple of years ago, I was awarded the Hayek, um, uh, Frederick Hayek uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, at a young age, a, you were the youngest like recipient. <laughs> but you were the, Tell me if I'm saying this wrong. You were the youngest recipient of the Hayek Lifetime Achievement Award. That's True what false. I was told. But who knows? We do um, our homework. So, but anyway, the point was that um, you know, in researching about Hayek's work, he and Keynes were actually very close, and yes. they respected each other's work. And I've actually written a number of articles about the need for a unified approach to economics. Mm-hmm. I mean, n- neither of us are correct, and you know, I mean, things company, uh, excuse me, companies and economies ebb and flow. What might be true in a uh, in a moderately growing economy, which doesn't have any shocks, is completely different um, in terms of potential government intervention when you have a financial crisis, for example. Well, and so, well if you're going to be rational, mm-hmm. how are we going to be able to argue about I stuff? know. That's, that's uh, kind of crazy. So I think in my in my later life, and just talking, coming back to your question about mentors in, in, from economics, I, I tend to like people who are more pragmatic. I mean, we clearly need governments to be involved in delivery of public goods. And there is clearly a point at which governments can do too much and therefore really undermine um, incentives and utility, the stuff that free marketeers love. And so we're constantly trying to find that balance. But I think, you know, I, I'm very interested in, in sort of the Scandinavian model because I think they mm-hmm. probably on the whole have a more interesting approach to the left versus right views about economics. And so that's how I tend to approach things. The, that That's pretty fascinating. You know, the debate, we need some government, should it be the line be here towards more or here towards less, is a rational debate. Sometimes, and especially some libertarians and, and followers of Hayek, I've made the argument, you really don't need government. The free market will take care of it. (laughs) And my answer is always, well, that ain't working out in Somalia. Why do you think it could work out in a developed country like the United States? No government is going to create a power vacuum. And some entity, be it military or corporate, is going to fill that that empty space. So you have to have something there. Uh, it, it seems rational. There are people who don't buy that argument. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because I think what I would say is that there's much more scope for improvement of the electoral system in the United States mm-hmm. and by and more generally of liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of the challenges that the world faces right now, whether it's aging populations, infrastructure challenges, undereducation, those are tend to be intergenerational, long-term structural problems. And yet, the political system is very short-term. You've got elections right. every two years. The motivations are kind of skewed and very rational, but skewed all the same. And in fact, disincentivizing politicians to focus on these long-term issues. And so, you know, the question is, is there flexibility in the democratic system to actually innovate and improve upon the liberal democratic system so that it better matches the economic challenges with the political system? And I think that's where the discussion should be in the United States and in many of the developed world countries. You know, it's very easy to become frustrated and cynical when you look at um, just a relentless parade of negative headlines in the United States. Not so much that bad things are happening, it's that simple things can't get fixed because of political paralysis. And then you enter a period of time, like the last 60 days, look at everything that's going on today, it's almost enough to give a person hope. Maybe yeah. uh, maybe it's easier when you're talking about foreign policy because there's uh, – look, we, we see what's going on with Iran today. Mm-hmm. 
That's surprisingly hopeful. Um, When we ran our analysis of what this does to the price of oil uh, and then what a reduced price of oil does to the global economy, uh, I'm reluctant to say it's almost enough to make one optimistic. But then when you look at basic stuff like roads, it's incredibly frustrating that even the most simple government function seems to be mired in paralysis. It's not that government can't work. It's that government presently, as it's constituted, isn't working. No, absolutely. And I think we shouldn't be Pollyanna-ish about uh, democracy and liberal democracy and its failures. And I think that's part of the problem. People hold it so sacrosanct. Well, our, forefather, our forefathers said this, and therefore we can't do anything about it, which is it's sort of the antithesis of Americana. Uh-huh. I mean, America is about innovation. It's about improvement. It's about creative destruction, etc. And so I think that democracy and, and we, by the way, we should absolutely be uh, optimistic, whether it's about the U.S. economy and about the global economy or foreign policy, etc. But we shouldn't be sort of obtuse about what needs to be done. And I think that there is a lot of scope for improvements, such as looking at term limits, looking at extending of terms, um, you know, and some of those experiments are already taking place around the world. Mandatory voting, God, you know, dare I say it, without getting shots in America. That, that, <laughs> that would be a, you know, the problem that you run into with mandatory voting is the people who are too uninformed, talk about low information voters, the people who are like, oh, was it an election in November? <laughs> so I don't know. The On the one hand, I like the theoretical concept of mandatory voting. Then you look at the people who never bother to vote, and it's like, really? Is is that? But that's a civic responsibility. Yes. I mean, we can we, look. It's another whole like other conversation. Taxes. But you know, we cannot sit here and complain about the government's underperformance if we can't even be bothered to go and vote. You know, you, you if you can't be bothered to go out there and express your view, then you really, therefore, should not sit around complaining about lack of infrastructure or underinvestment education or pensions or et cetera, all the other things that we spend a lot of time moaning about. The, there has to be some way to, speaking of Richard Thaler, to nudge people into voting the way they've done it with organ donation and other such stuff. It sh- could be set up to encourage more people to vote, certainly to make it easier to vote. Um, but we're a nation that uh, maybe it's we're too wealthy and too relatively well off to be all that concerned. We have amongst the lowest voting turnout, voter turnout in in industrialized democracies. Certainly much lower than Europe, although they're trending down also, they aren't are. they? Yes, they are absolutely. So is that a function of wealth or just? People getting lazy. What, so what there, is it? there's a whole history and you know literature on this issue, and you know I, obviously we, we won't have time to go into it in grave detail. But I definitely think that you know uh, there is an element of indifference that can occur. You know when people are quite satiated, their sort of physical and human needs, sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if sure. you will, are sort of satiated, and therefore you know on the margin they may not like certain things, but it's not so fundamental that they feel like they need to go out there and express a very strong view. So, so now now we don't have to, you just resolve that issue, it's settled, yeah. and we don't have to spend a lot of time on that. So let's talk a little bit about global events, because we really haven't. Um, what do you think about what's happening in Greece with the European solution to them staying on the euro? Do you think this was the right decision? Do you think Greece uh, overplayed their hand, should have left the euro? What what What's your 
impression on that? So um, my view on Greece is that what we've seen in recent sort of months and probably even the last few years is has never been a transition. It's been an equilibrium. And I think it's very important people understand the difference. I think there's been a, a misunderstanding in the markets that somehow Greeks' debt and the restructuring needs and around pension funds and uh, civil service, et cetera, were things that were going to get resolved. And then we move into this amazing equilibrium where the euro right. is functioning. And I don't don't agree with that at all. I think that what we have is have, has all the hallmarks of the aid system. We have a large functioning, uh, in, let's call it institution, group mm-hmm. of countries, which is the European Union, that has a lot of money. Put the, call them the donor, and you have a relatively poor, um, non-performing, uh, dysfunctional, in many ways, it's totally dysfunctional, dysfunctional sure. um, p- uh, economy that actually. I would say, and I use the term lightly, is being rewarded for bad behavior. Mm -hmm. And so you've ended up in this locked equilibrium where the donor needs the recipient to stay in um, because obviously there are too many risks and a number of very significant risks for Greece leaving. You could, you know, it could be a portal for terrorists. It could be undermine the uh, union itself because other countries will say, well, what about us? We want, also want to be a bit more lax, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there's also benefits for the recipient to keep in the, in the game. And this is like a game theoretic corner or solution that um, I've seen play out in the emerging markets with the aid system. You have donors that continue to give money, even though these countries are not doing what they said they were going to do. Um, but, you know, they will it will get to the, such an extent that the donors are even willing to pay the countries to repay the debt. So the, the bo- on the books, it looks like the country's paying back the money, but actually we don't see the improvements in the metrics such as growth or improvement increases in uh, retirement age, uh, all, all the stuff that, you know, Greece in particular is looking at, but, you know, more structural uh, issues that need to be addressed. When we look at the structural issues in Greece, the concept of everybody having to pay their taxes just seems to be completely foreign, and, and it's not a surprise. There's an underground economy. My favorite data point, I'm trying to remember who, who ran the story. It was either the Times or the Wall Street Journal about the swimming pools yes. in Athens. Yes. So you pay a tax on a swimming pool. It's not a whole lot of money. But it's a chunk of change, and something like 100 people paid the swimming pool tax in Athens. But you use a Google satellite image, exactly. and there's 16,000 right. swimming pools. So the the lack of the taxpayer avoidance data, 99% of people aren't paying their taxes. How can anybody run a government, an infrastructure, an economy when when the bulk of the public just aren't participating in their Civic obligation. But that's what I was going to say. It goes back to the civic obligation because that is, I mean, you know, it's patently unfair, uh, I would say, to be, to be for people to draw on a system, a societal system, uh, without feeling that they should be contributing in some respect. And now, obviously, over the lifetime of certain people, things happen so that the society, and that's why societies ebb and flow, so that they have a welfare aspect, they have government stepping in when markets don't clear, et cetera. But clearly what has happened in the Greece construct is that this economy is not a developed economy in any way um, near what it should have been. It's somewhere it between been. emerging market and, and a developing country. And I think it needs a lot more latitude and flexibility to do what it needs to do to improve its uh, you know its own lot. And under you know under the auspices of the euro, I think it's just made it much more much more difficult. I mean, in a nutshell, I don't think that they'll be able to leave uh, or be asked to leave. All right. So I only have you for ten more minutes. So let me plow through some of my favorite questions that I ask of all my guests. 
Uh, let's talk a little bit about books and reading. You're obviously well-educated and you've read a lot of um, textbooks. What other books do you enjoy reading? Um, I'm trying to think of a book I'm reading now that I really like. I tend to like, I'm, I'm kind of into the marathon zone right now. So right. I'm actually reading a book by um, Stu Middleman, who is a, a marathoner. I believe he's in his mid to late 60s. I mean, he's run so many marathons and ultra marathons, which are 100 milers, and he's actually eroded his uh, knees. His knees. Yes. Um, he's got no cartilage. And so, but I'm fascinated by sports. I love tennis. I was just at Wimbledon finals um, over the weekend. Oh, that was I just great. watched that Sunday. Yeah. Fantastic. So that was fantastic. I and thought so, Federer was going to pull it. I there were too. repeated opportunities for him to pull that out. Yeah, no. And you got to give Djokovic credit. He's yeah. just a machine. He's yeah. guy has total package. There's I, we could digress into yeah. tennis. But anyway, the long story short is I'm I'm really into books now, more on, on athletics and how you. And you began it. running marathons. You started late a year in life, ago. Didn't you? Yes, I did. I was in my forties already, um, and so I. So you still I have had, some cartilage left. I have these. a little bit of cartilage left. At least it hasn't been eroded by the passage of time. But not well, yet. the those by the way, those ultra. Everybody forgets. I I'm fond of telling. You know, you say an ultra marathoner has no cartilage left in his knee. Everybody forgets the guy who ran the first marathon, was it Sparta to Athens or? To, to, to Marathon. Right. To, to Thomas marathon. He dropped dead when he, he arrived. Yes. I, I think we took the wrong lesson from that. <laughs> the lesson is 26 miles is too far to run. It's 26.2, Barry. Right. Don't forget the point two. Right. That's the See, don't forget they dropped dead at the end. That's <laughs> the do. thing that I remember. Mm -hmm. That's why I used to run long distance in, in high school and college. But I competed three miles, and that's it. Wow. Three miles is plenty. And uh, since I stopped that, I've fortunately <laughs> managed to retain my girlish figure. But uh, <laughs> so, so what other nonfiction books do you do you like? What something related to finance and economics? Anything? Um, I'm actually reading a book right now. Um, I'm going to get the title wrong. I think it's called the Fallen, the, the, the something catastrophe. It's on Greece. Funny enough, uh -huh. I don't know why it's popped out of my head. I'll remember before we head off. But basically, it's case studies. It was written by a New York uh, New York Times journalist. It's just come out. It's basically case studies really underscoring the stuff we're talking about, the dysfunctionality of the society of this, right. and how um, it's really, um, I think, for traders in particular, it's, there's lots of lessons learned about how we should be thinking about the the Greece's likelihood of, of exit, but also the likelihood of some of the reforms that are being demanded upon them actually being coming to, to and, fruition. And thank you so much for not saying Grexit. I, I <laughs> that but what's interesting to me about Greece is economically, there's only so far tourism and agriculture scale, they really need a little bit more of a modern economy. And there's just real massive cultural resistance to that, isn't there? I think many countries need a little bit more of a modern uh, modern take. I mean, if you look at what's happening in technology space, it's very clear that you know, we, we there are, will be gains, but there will also be significant losers if countries don't continue to innovate in, in a more aggressive way. So so you said you started running marathon in your 40s. Yes. Whatever motivated you at that age to say, I think I'll start running 26.2 <laughs> miles. Uh, like that's sort of an unusual thing late in life, isn't it? It is, um, I think. But I should say I have late to in say... life. I should say middle in life. <laughs> well, the um, the oldest marathon runner started running at 89. He's now in his hundreds. He's about 102, 100. And he's still running marathons. He's still running marathons. And by the way, I've just remembered the name of the book. The book's called The Full Catastrophe by James Angelos. Oh, and okay. It's on, it's Sounds on fascinating. It's, it's very good. Worth a Running read. marathons at 100. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, at and 100, so... you're entitled to sit down for a little while. <laughs> um, he could take a cab. 
he doesn't yeah. have to run. He didn't take a cab. He, was, he crossed the line. He's fantastic. Wow. Uh, yeah, he's really amazing. But in any case, the long story short is that uh, you may recall last year, 2014, April, there were about 300 girls that were abducted yes. um, in Nigeria, northern Nigeria, by terrorists. And uh, I was actually uh, kicking and screaming to a, a media mogul, a friend of mine, who I said, this is completely outrageous. You know, the media is not even picking up on the story in an aggressive way. And he said, well, what are you doing about it? And he's a very, um, you know, he's a very famous um, global media person. Mm. And he said, well, you're just sitting here and moaning about it. Why don't you do something? And so I was trying to think, what could I do that was going to put me a little, you know, in a little bit of discomfort, but actually try and do something quite positive and constructive. So I ended up running the New York Marathon. I uh, had a very disastrous time. It was 6.36. It was cold finished. and windy. I did finish. And That's then, not disastrous. You <laughs> your first marathon, you finished. I did. And then I just did the London Marathon a few months ago. So how did that correlate to the girls in uh, that well, were abducted? Raised money, um, raised money for the girls. Um, and, you know, really hopefully brought some awareness to, to the issue. And there's been more and more coverage about that. Yes, there has been. But again, you know, as we were talking earlier, 65 out of 150 countries around the world are now um, considered to be high or um, very high political risk of um, geopolitical uncertainty. 65 out of 150 50 nations in the world yeah. are at high risk of political unrest. Yes, exactly. Uh, this is according to the EIU. So so what does that mean in terms of, of moving forward? Is well, it... we've got security risks, which means people are less likely to want to invest in these regions. This is a very serious problem for places like the emerging markets where 70% of the population is under the age of 25, where they need jobs, they need trade, they need investment. And if we're not going to get that because there's so much political volatility, you're creating this sort of um, cycle where there's lack of investment and therefore you have more um, you know, populations that are disaffected and they they, they join these uh, these radicals and, and, and terrorists. Uh, Pokal po- po- um, I'm trying to remember Boko the name. Haram. Boko Haram. Yes. And, ISIS, um, of ISIS, course. Right. North Africa is a hotbed of this, as we know, but also in the Middle East. So at this point, there's a huge incentive for developed wealthy nations like the United States and and the UK. To, to try and be more productive in in how they interact with these countries. Oh yes, absolutely. But I mean, no, I think there's also a premium to be made for the you know old adage of physician heal thyself. I think the the United States really gets its house in order. It can actually do much more to signal to the world what a positive society can look like. So we have to get our house in order. Mm-hmm. That, that's a shame. That crazy that, idea. That's a shame that no, we won't, that that that's the prerequisite. <laughs> we we haven't. Don't seen be Anna, Don't be so on, on, so, you know, so negative. Let let me give go through my last few questions before you run off. So since you joined the fields of economics, what do you see as the major changes that have ch- taken place within that area of study? Well, clearly, as a macroeconomist. The big problem is that we've been shown to not be able to, you know, be truth sayers of the future, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we were not able to call the financial crisis. um, Some of us were, but I understand what, (laughs) you know, I I understand what you're saying about the macro. It goes back to the science point. Sure. It's not a science and people, these are human beings. And, you know, I think most economists would be sitting in Tahiti if we could. And I think that has probably been the biggest um, mark and and probably undermined the the profession considerably. It's made people go back and think about what might be a better way to approach it. There, There was a wonderful book, I want to say in the late 90s, called The Fortune Tellers, and it described how people, economists, politicians, business people who are all engaged in the act of forecasting the future, and they're all terrible at it. And there's reasons why they're bad at it, uh, but there's also reasons why they tend to make these forecasts that are attention-getting, albeit inaccurate. Correct. And, and that set of incentives are. So 
Um, we're, we're talking about various career options for people under 25. What sort of career advice do you give to millennials who are just starting out, recent college graduates? What would you advise them? So I think there are two things. Um, one is you just absolutely have to get out there. And by that, I mean don't just spend your time in the little environment and community that you live. You've got to travel the world. It's, you're living in an amazing time where the costs, relative costs of travel oh, have, have so come crashing down. Um, there's just a world out there that is really important for you to experience firsthand. But the other thing is that you should not underestimate the importance and the need for hard work. I think that there is a little bit of this view that perhaps um, things don't, you don't require the investment um, of time and energy to, and, you know, really getting things wrong. And that experience, I think, should not be missed by uh, millennials. How much time do we have left? Can I keep her here for another hour? What What's the word? Five minutes? I got the last two questions. All right. So, all right. So we'll make it quick. So, so when we went to lunch, so you and I, uh, uh, the four of us who are actually here today, went to lunch. One of the things we were discussing was what it was like being an African woman working in a corporate environment at, at places like Barclays and S.A.B. Miller. And I said, you know, from my perspective, I'm a white male working in New York as and I'm would have to call myself a New York progressive Jewish liberal socialist summer camps, that whole Woody Allen line of jokes. <laughs> but it's hard for someone like me to to, to imagine the obstacles that are, are in a path of somebody like yourself coming out of Zambia. How do you adapt to that? What sort of challenges were in your path? And were they not really challenges? Were they just something that you said, oh, this is just another hurdle to overcome? Well, there clearly are a lot of challenges. And I've been very lucky because um, many people, not people who were necessarily from Africa or black or women or from Zambia, etc., have been very supportive. In fact, many people don't look like me at all who have given me an opportunity to take a chance. Um, having said that, that there was an onus on me to also perform when I got those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important for, for all of us to understand, wherever we come from, by the way, to understand that the world is, um, a, is worse off by not having the perspective and the uh, experiences of people who don't necessarily look like us, and you know, it's it's very it's a it's a great disadvantage to our societies um, to assume that our little coterie of people uh, know how things should be and how they are, because I think that ultimately, in terms of trying to solve the most intractable problems of the world, whether it's growth, poverty, climate change, uh, etc., we're going to need many different minds, many different perspectives, and really should matter what the gender, origin, race is. And if societies and institutions recognize that they're at a disadvantage, I think that they will um, be much more positive about attracting people from other so, so on a related note, you're in London half the time, you're in New York half the time. How, how do these issues differ in the UK and the US? Well, I wouldn't I, I think obviously in the place like the United States, um, there has been a considerable improvement in participation of people from different genders, people from different races. I mean, I was just looking at some data on the number of women who are CEOs um, in Fortune 500 companies. Of course, it's not 
you know, anywhere where Still we'd like small, it to be. but it's up it's, a little it's bit. It's increased over the last years. And I think it's very important that we are happy and celebrate the improvements. We don't think it's, again, it's not a permanent equilibrium. It's a, trans- a transition. And we want to see more Mary Barras and Meg Whitmans and et cetera uh, around. And I think that, that the trend is in the right direction. Um, but this is not about a favor. Um, we have shareholders who expect returns. We have societies that expect performance. And um, the, to, the, to the extent that we can really impress upon um, societies that we want to see more of the diversity, whether it's race and gender, et cetera, uh, even age, I might point out, um, these are all very big aspects of, you know, our societies should draw on those, um, those talents. And my final question, what do you know today about the world of economics or business that you wish you knew 20 years ago when you were first starting out? There are no right answers, and anything is possible. Anything is possible. That's fascinating. Well, Dambisa, I know you were uh, running off to lecture Barack Obama about <laughs> foreign policy, so thank you so much thank for being you, so generous with your time. This was really both fascinating and wonderful. Uh, I've been speaking with Dambisa Moyo. She's a global economist and, and consultant. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on uh, Apple iTunes, and you could see all of our previous conversations. By the way, you are the 52nd um, interview, so this is our one-year anniversary. Fantastic. So thank you so much for uh, making this so special. Thank you, Uh, I want to say thank you to Matt, my engineer, Charlie, our producer. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.